Two old Quakers were chatting one day, and one said to the other, You know, sometimes I think that everyone in the world is a bit off, except for me and thee. And sometimes I wonder about thee. It's interesting that Paul jumps into the whole issue of unity here in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's really easy to be unified when it's just us, right? When it's just me, myself, and I. Unity in the church is an incredible picture of Christ and what he has done. And it's interesting that Paul, in this address, he doesn't start off with just laying down what we, how we need to live our lives. He starts with the unity of the church. If you look at Ephesians, verse chapter 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That should be their goal as a result of all they've heard in the last three chapters. If you'll turn to John chapter 17, verse 20, where does this unity come from? Where does this unity of the church have its origin? It has its origin in the very Godhead. And here we see Jesus in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17 we see the unity that he has with the Father and the desire that he has for the whole body to have unity with Christ. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 17 of John, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' prayer is that the church would be brought up into the triune God and the unity that is there. And that as the church becomes unified around the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit, that the world will see that he came. And they'll see this heavenly community taking place here on the earth. And just as Jesus has this prayer, praying this, we know that it's going to be accomplished, don't we? Jesus never has a prayer prayed that's not answered. So we rejoice in the fact that this unity is going to be built. And Paul deals with this in Ephesians chapter 4. And he talks about the importance of a healthy church. And for a healthy church to be healthy, it has to be unified. 
And so this morning we're going to look at three aspects of why the church, how the church is unified. One, it's unified by divine calling. Verse 1, it's unified by Christ-like character in verses 2 and 3. And in verses 4 through 6, it's unified by sound doctrine. Unity is so important in the mind of Christ. And it's something that has been given to us. And if you'll notice in verse 3, he says, maintaining the unity of the Spirit. It's not something we're trying to reach. Unity is something that we have. Something that's been given to us by the Spirit of God, and it's something that we need to maintain. And as our church continues to move and transition and growth in the days and weeks and months and years ahead, unity will be very important to maintaining the goals that God has for us. So first of all, a healthy church is united by, di- by divine calling. If you look at verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We're moving from these incredible promises we had in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of what God has promised us. And now, because of these great promises and what God has done on our behalf and how he's made us new creations in Christ, now he expects us to live in a way that's worthy of that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And the first thing he's calling us to is unity. It's really important, sound doctrine should produce godly living. If you focus on doctrine alone to the exclusion of of obedience, you've aborted the process and you'll become arrogant. And we know people who know a tremendous amounts of doctrine, but they're not applying it. And they're very proud of the doctrine they have. The problem is, the process is doctrine should produce what? Right living. On the other hand, if you focus on practical application without the doctrinal foundation, you'll easily fall into legalism or superficial Christianity. So doctrine should produce right living. That's why you'll see in all Paul's letters, he starts with doctrine. In this book, it was three chapters, and then he moves into sound living. In Romans, he has 11 chapters of doctrine, and then he has Seven chapters of application of that doctrine. So it's important that we believe correctly, and that changes the way we live our lives if we've been truly born by the Spirit of God. Paul has surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ, and he's now a prisoner because of Christ. Paul's no longer living for himself but for Christ and his kingdom. He's living for those who have the same calling as him. He is their servant and his life is no longer his own. He was bought with a price and is now to live for Christ and the saints. When we come to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're changed and now we belong to him. And as Paul tells us, at least this is twice in the book of Ephesians that he's a prisoner of Christ. He's a prisoner because he's choosing to live his life for Christ and for others. 
and not for himself. The Christian life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and it's about us and living life together. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 25, it's important that we live life together. And it's important that we're concerned about the needs of the body. In Matthew chapter 25, here we see the judgment and him talking to those who are the righteous. Starting in verse 35. So verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did, you see, when did we see you sick or in, in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So we're being called in this chapter to live our lives together in unity with Christ. Notice the word here. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The word worthy carries the idea of a scale. So what God's done is he's put chapters 1, 2, and 3 on the scale. I have chosen you before the foundations of the earth. I have forgiven you. I have adopted you as sons. I have sealed you with the precious Holy Spirit. You were dead in transgressions and sins. I've made you alive. And I am putting everything under Christ. You are part of God's family. You are adopted. All these incredible promises are in one through three. And now he says, live in a manner worthy of this. How can we do that? Only by the grace of God. How can we live worthy of these promises? By living and becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to do it. We have been given an incredible, incredible promise and inheritance. And just living for ourselves is not going to be living weighty enough to be, to be worthy of that. Obviously, we all agree that apart from Jesus Christ, we are not worthy That's why Christ came and died and gave us his righteousness. And we rejoice in that. But the admonition is still here. Okay, just because you can't live just like Jesus, he doesn't give us a pass, does he? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Why? Because you've been given the Holy Spirit. Because you've been given the word of God. Because you've been given the body of Christ. Because you have the Lord Jesus himself praying and intercede for you. Therefore, do what? Walk worthy. Why would he command us to do something we can't do? 
He knows we need the Lord Jesus Christ to do it, but he commands us to do it, to live in a way. And that's what the next three chapters are all about, is living in a manner that's worthy of this incredible calling that we have. He says, the calling to which you have been called. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy. The word walk means to conduct one's life. You see it all in the scriptures, walk in a manner worthy. Live your life differently because of what Christ has done for you. In Christ's kingdom, there is no sacred and secular divide. We're told to live all of our life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a minister, whether you're not a minister, whether you're working a regular job, you live your normal life, every aspect of your life should be under the lordship of Christ. And we should live every aspect of our lives for the glory of God alone. Notice the calling that we've been given. He says, the calling to which you've been called. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 8. When you and I go out into the streets and we proclaim Jesus to people, that is a call. We're calling people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Billy Graham stood before hundreds of thousands of people and called people to Jesus, that was an outward call to come and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, we have not just received an outward call, brothers and sisters. We have received an effectual call. Romans 8, verse 30 says, And those whom we predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he did what to? Justified. And those whom he justified, he did what? Glorified. I want you to notice that all that he predestined, he did what? Called. All that he called, he what? Justified. All he justified, he will what? Glorify. You, brothers and sisters, and myself are what? If we're truly Christians, we have been called in a way that guarantees we'll be justified, sanctified, glorified. How does it, how does it feel to be the called? Isn't that amazing? We're called. We're called in such an effectual way that we repent and believe. We're called in such an effectual way that we remain with him, that we're justified. And we're called in such a way that we will be glorified. Aren't you grateful for that in a world that is very uncertain? I don't know about you, I am. The world around us is very uncertain in a whole lot of areas. But this for sure we have, isn't it? that we have been called. And according to Romans 8.30, we will be what? Glorified. We'll talk about that a little bit more down the road. So we have this incredible calling to which we have been called. So we, we need to walk in unity because we have the same calling. We've all been called to Christ. We're all being changed into his image and we're all going to be in glory together. Therefore, we should be what? United. There should be unity there. Secondly, the healthy church is united by Christ-like 
conduct in verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the unity starts with this divine call, and the unity continues to be maintained because we're being changed to look like Christ. Notice these qualities. These qualities are the qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you'll notice, we have seen these before, haven't we? Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, we're told to set our minds on things above. And then we're told to put to death those things that are earthly, all those sins that are earthly in us. And then we're told to put those off, to put those to death. And then in verse 12, look what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness or gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We are called by the power of the Spirit to live like Jesus. We should manifest humility and gentleness with each other and patience and bearing with each other in love and maintaining the unity that we've been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is building one great body. We're told in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set down in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him. Everything is going to be united under the Lord Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and on earth. He tells us in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, which we've already covered, that we are being built and joined together Growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets being the foundation. God is building this incredible temple. We are part of that. He is promising that's going to be done. And he's saying as a result of these promises, we are to begin to live in unity with each other. And the only way we can do that is if we become like Christ. If we treat each other with humility and gentleness and kindness and patience and forbearance and overall put on love. We're in this together. We should make every effort to implant these qualities in our life with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it can be done. I'm not calling you to display Christ's qualities in your own efforts. Hear me. You can't do that. That's why God gave you the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And you will take on more and more of the qualities of Christ as you love him through the word, as you pray, 
as you depend upon him daily for grace to put to death the sin in your life and to live for and with each other. We can't do it by ourselves. He puts us together in a body. We're very much like geese. Geese fly at speeds of 40 to 50 miles per hour. That doesn't apply to us. They travel in formation because as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an updraft for the bird behind it. Because they fly in this V formation, they can go 70% further as a group than they could when they fly alone. We are like that, aren't we? When we have a common purpose, when we are together, we are propelled by the thrust of others who share those same goals. As each of you seeks to become more like Christ, you help pull others along. Amen? And people draft off of you as you are living for Christ. I remember men in my life who I saw had a passion for Jesus and I found myself getting behind them and trying to, if you will, fly with them and growing in grace as I learned from them. This is called what? Discipleship. Discipleship and sanctification are not meant to be done by yourself. They're meant to be done together. And so as we all pursue becoming humble and gentle and patient and bearing with each one another and loving each other, as we do that together as a body with each other, we propel each other more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can get a lot further alone than we can by ourselves. Interesting things, geese also honk at one another. They're not critics, but encouragers. Those in the rear sound off to exhort those up front to stay on course and to maintain their speed. That's why they're honking at each other. So we too, brothers and sisters, need to honk at each other and exhort each other to continue to move on toward the prize. And as we become more like Christ, we become more and more unified. And the world can see that and see that Christ is real. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the unity of the church is a manifestation of the perfection of the Godhead. If God is truly unified, then his church should be what? Unified. He also said that we should see ourselves as members of the church and see the church as a reflection on earth of the oneness of the triune God, three in one, one in three. It's really important to have unity. Unfortunately, though, you can't just have unity for unity's sake. That's where we get to point three. Our unity must be because of sound doctrine. We have to hold the same beliefs. Verses four through six. Listen to these beliefs. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If we have unity with people who don't hold to these foundational doctrines, we are in error. Spurgeon said, fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. 
So while we need to unite as much as we can with brothers and sisters who hold the same doctrine, we need to also know when it's okay to what? Separate. In the 1900s, in the 1990s, evangelical leaders like Chuck Holson, Bill Bright, J.I. Packer, and others signed the Evangelicals and Catholics Together document in an attempt for unity. It called for Protestants to come together with the Catholic Church in the many areas where we agree, setting aside our differences over matters like justification by faith alone. And for many years before that, even with the Billy Graham Crusades, there was this effort to do the evangelistic crusades with the Catholic Church. The problem is that the Catholic Church does not believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They believe in justification by grace plus human works. The popular promise keepers movement pressured unity at the expense of doctrine. At their national pastors conference in 1996, popular author who actually lives in this area, Max Licato, called on 40,000 pastors in attendance to set aside the labels of Catholic and Protestant and to recognize that we're all sailing on the same ship with Jesus as our captain. Before serving communion, Lucado urged the pastors who had, who had ever criticized another denomination, referring to pastors who had criticized the Catholic Church, to find a pastor from that denomination and ask his forgiveness. If Luther and Calvin had been present, they may have been encouraged to apologize to the Pope. So, what am I saying here? Unity is very important. Unity has to be around sound doctrine. If we gain unity without sound doctrine in agreement, the church has just become apostatized. It's that simple. And there's a huge movement, the whole emerging church movement is that very same thing. Let's forget doctrine and let's just focus on loving each other in Jesus, whatever that means. So these doctrines are very, very important. Attempts to unify with others who hold extreme doctrinal error brings confusion to the gospel and a false sense of unity. Notice that Jesus and Paul were quick to divide over false doctrine. Look at Matthew 23 and the religious leaders of his day. Jesus wasn't looking for unity with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. He called them false teachers and he told them where they were going. The apostle Paul with the Judaizers who said, hey, you've got to be a Jew first before you come to Jesus. He had some very strong words for them in Galatians. So, we want unity by what? By divine calling, by manifesting the character of Christ, and finally by sound doctrine. So we have seven ones here in this last little passage from four through six. The first one is the body, one body. Paul's not referring to the visible church, but rather to the unseen spiritual body of Christ composed of all genuine believers in every time and place since the day of Pentecost. There is one body of believers from the beginning till the end. There's one body of believers. And 
our hope is that everyone here is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality may be there may be people here among us today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been religious, they've been in church all their lives, they can pray, they read their Bible, but they've never truly been changed by the Holy Spirit and truly put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a body of believers in which everyone has done that. They are the called. They are the ones who will be saved. They are the ones who will be with Christ forever. So there is one body. True Christian unity is always based on this principle of new life. The body is only for people who have been made alive in Christ. It's not just I agree with certain tenets of the faith or I believe this about Jesus or that about Jesus. It is that the Spirit of God has done a change in you and made you a new creation in Christ. And as a result of that, your life is changed. It's not just people who want to be better and try harder. It is people who've been radically changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are of whom there, that we have in that body. And that means that we're not the only church. FCF's not the only church. There's other churches around this globe that are part of the body of Christ. And we rejoice and we pray for them that they will grow and disciple others and expand the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's one body. And remember, we're in Ephesians. And what were we talking about? He made the two what? One. What were the two bodies? Jews and Gentiles. And by the power of Christ and his death, he made those two very warring groups one. And Christ being the cornerstone. So there is only one body. That's what's amazing. Of all the different diversity, diversities in the body of Christ, it is one. And that unity just shows the truth of what Christ has done. Secondly, not only one body, one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work that regenerates us, making us alive to be able to repent and believe. If you're part of the body of Christ, it's because the Spirit of God did a work in your heart. And each of us had the same spirit do that work. Isn't that amazing? To change us and begin to make us in the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 9 says, however you are not in the flesh... But in the spirit, he's talking to the believers in Rome. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's nobody here who can be part of the body of Christ if the spirit of God does not live in you. Has to be. Every believer has had the spirit work on them and now indwells them so one body one spirit one hope we praise God that biblical hope is not I hope it doesn't rain today biblical hope is an absolute certainty it's just not been realized it is certain because God has promised it and he will never fail to keep his promises. We just haven't experienced it yet at this point in time. Our hope is in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to complete our salvation.
We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And when Christ comes back, the salvation will be complete. We look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. That is our great hope. And life without hope is, is, is despair, isn't it? And we live around people all around us who are in great despair. I think about our military men and the number of men who are committing suicide in the military. It's a lack, a loss of hope. We of all people have the greatest hope of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. We look forward to that. Not only one hope, but one Lord. One pastor states, if a person or a religious group denies what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, we are not in unity with them. If they deny his substitutionary death on the cross as the only means by which we can be reconciled to God, we are not with them. If they deny the need to submit everything to Jesus as Lord and to live so as to please him, we are not one with them. He is our Lord both by virtue of who he is and because he purchased us with his blood. We cannot have fellowship with blatantly disobedient believers. We can't. I remember when I lived in Canada, I got a knock at the door one day and there was a, it was a Saturday morning and a couple of people came to the door and they were sharing with me a magazine they wanted me to have and they were talking, that they were telling me they were Christians like I was a Christian and we talked about some things about the Christian faith and they said one thing and I said another and they said, they said, brother, what do you think the people right here think when they see us as Christians disagreeing with each other? And I said, I don't see you as a Christian because you don't believe in who Jesus claimed to be. That conversation kind of got short after that. But what was he asking? He was saying, hey, if we're, if, we're, if we're really of the same group, we should have unity, right? Agreed. What was the problem? Doctrine. Who Jesus was. Was critical. We can't have unity with the Mormons. We can't have unity with the Jehovah Witnesses. We can't have unity with those in Islam. We're not worshiping the same God. And there's going to be more and more pressure brought to bear upon us to see our Islamic friends as, as worshiping the same God that we do. They don't worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ to them is a prophet. But a greater prophet came after Jesus, and that is Muhammad. And Jesus didn't die for their sins. We both got the one God thing right. The problem is their one God isn't a God. And ours is the one true God, which we're going to get to in just a minute. So we can't have unity with people who don't hold to the same belief. So what's our solution? Compromise? No. It's proclaim the gospel. It's call them to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to clearly, lovingly explain that the path they're headed to does not lead to heaven. 
that there's only one way. There's only one name under heaven given by men by which you must be saved, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to get vocal about it and proclaim that and take, let the chips fall where they may. But we say it. The solution is not, oh, because you believe in one God and we believe in one God, we're all the good. Everything's all good. It's not all good. Jesus is very clear in John 14. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Life. There is no one who comes to God except through me. He gets into it with the Jews and John. And he basically says, if you, don't, if you believe the Father but don't believe the Son, you don't have the Father. The Father and Son are together. You can't separate them. Doctrine is critical to know who's on the team and who is not. And we need to pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But the solution is not to water down the message and make everybody feel good. The solution is to proclaim Christ and him alone in loving boldness. Calling people to leave their error and know the joy that we have. He's the only one that brings joy. He's the only one that brings freedom and forgiveness of sins. He's the only one that offers hope. He is the one Lord. And of course, going along with that is one faith. What's one faith? That's the, that's the, that is the, the core truths that uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every true believer holds that the eternal God sent his eternal son who took on human flesh through the virgin birth. This God, made, <clears throat> this God man lived a perfect life and offered himself on the cross in the place of sinners, paying the debt that we owe. He was raised bodily from the dead. He ascended bodily into heaven. And he is coming back bodily to judge the world and to reign forever. We receive the salvation that he offers by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any merit or work on our part. If a person denies any of these core truths of the gospel, he does not hold to the one faith and there is no basis for unity with him. That just sure seems harsh. Read the word. Read the word. There is only one way. Jesus is the way. And you can't even just get the name right. You've got to believe what he said about himself. One baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So this one spirit who saved us baptized us all into this one body. It's not a physical, it's not talking, I don't think he's talking about physical water baptism here. I think he's talking about this spiritual baptism where we're all placed in this body by the Spirit of God. There's one baptism that puts us all into the body of Christ. And then finally, one God and Father of all. And look how they describe him. He is over all. That means he is Lord over all. And he is through all, which means he is literally, his Spirit is working through us in our lives and in all, praise God, his Holy Spirit dwells within us. Seven ones 
that say we are all one body by one spirit, by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. J.C. Ryle says, unity and peace are very delightful, but they are bought too dear if they are bought at the expense of truth. Our unity should be around the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and what the word of God tells us to be true. What's our application here, brothers? We need to maintain the unity of the body here in this local church. And we need to work at being humble with each other and gentle and forbearing and forgiving and letting love cover over a multitude of things. And that we should all be striving together to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we should rejoice that we have been called with a calling that guarantees we'll be with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are incredibly grateful that you called us. Us who were dead in trespasses and sins, you called us. You woke us up from the dead by the power of your spirit. And you granted us the grace to believe and repent in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for that. And we are so grateful for the hope that we have that we will be with you forever. Father, I pray that you would help us to strive as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ to become more and more and more like him in humility and gentleness and patience and kindness and forgiveness and forbearance and love toward each other. And Father, that you would grant us grace to proclaim this glorious King to all mankind, not afraid to speak the truth in love, not afraid to confront error, Not afraid to say this is a false God. This is a false religion. There is only one true religion. There's only one true God. There's only one true path for salvation. And it's found alone in you, Lord Jesus. And we give you honor and we give you glory and we give you praise for that. And Lord, help us to not be silent but to grow in holy boldness in a culture that's getting darker and darker. In Jesus' name, amen.